All hail our infinite God is the truth. We invite you to take your seats now while we hear from our morning's storyteller. Um, so this is something we do here if you're kind of new to Evergreen. This is a chance when you guys come on up and share a little bit with the congregation. Uh, a little chance to share a bit about yourself and your story. And today we have the honor of hearing from Miss Donna Palmberg. She's kind of a legend around these parts. I've known her since, yeah, I know she, we could give her an early round of applause for sure. I've known her since I was just a kid, and Donna is best known for roping anyone, even if it's their first Sunday, into something. She's like our connection ministry in one person right here. So, Donna, thanks for sharing your story with us. Are you ready to accept God's answer to prayers? Whether it's trusting in the fact that he can be trusted, like when God closes a door, you'll find he opens another Bud and I had planned to marry after two years of seminary. <clears throat> However, after his first year, a little country church in southern Alabama needed a married pastor, and he was asked to consider doing a two-year internship there. At first, he hesitated because he wasn't sure he was confident enough yet to be a pastor of a congregation. <clears throat> we prayed together and eventually sensed God leading him to accept that challenge. What a glorious experience we had. We grew to love the people as they warmly welcomed us. Bud, though young, was respected. He was only 22. After leading a young man to Christ one evening, he took a long walk alone and confirmed his call from the Lord. Already having had my third year majoring in Christian education of children at North Park University, I was able to develop a Sunday children's church program, and vacation Bible camp, reaching out to that farming community. Bud and I together also enjoyed leading around 25 eager youth, several who became Jesus' followers and were baptized in a river nearby, while others waved branches to keep the water moccasins away from this sacred event. Three years later, during Bud's final months in seminary, we prayed that some church would contact him. Eureka, California showed interest, but then chose one of his classmates. In early spring, we drove three hours responding to a preaching invitation in Kiwani, Illinois, 150 miles west of Chicago. The congregation there was without a pastor, but expecting a candidate the following Sunday. Approximately 10 days later, to our surprise, a neighbor delivered a Western Union telegram that had blown from our porch into his garden. It was an invitation for Bud to consider being the pastor of Kiwani Church. So we spent five wonderful years there with that congregation. However, as you heard a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, when Bob Dings was talking, he was sent by Evergreen Church here to spy on Bud while on a business trip for Boeing. We were happy in Kiwani, and Bud had felt led to reply in the negative to congregations that had contacted him. Therefore, he did the same when contacted by Mercer Island. But prayers here continued as well as persistence. Bob's sitting right here in the front row here. When being asked to reconsider, we thought more seriously about a move. 
Bud had never been here and thought Seattle was off the edge of the map. A rainy December visit and God's leading had us here with Jeff, four years old, and Chrissy, two years old, by late April 1967. And with God's blessings, we stayed 26 years until 1993. A lot of you are fairly new and haven't met my daughter, Chrissy. She and Michael, her husband, are sitting right over here. So maybe you can meet them sometime. However, in 1987, we were still here at this church, but we were driving in Germany, and Bud asked me, if we ever had an opportunity to pastor a church in Europe, where would you enjoy living? Well, my reply was, well, we were in Lucerne, Switzerland for only three hours with our tour group, but I think I'd love to live there for a time. Believe it or not, six years later, we were invited to move to the International Church of Lucerne, in 1993 and remained there for seven great years. God hears the prayers of our hearts. Now, most of you know that while we were spending three months in Bali, Indonesia last spring to volunteer at the Kuta International Church, Bud suffered a severe brain bleed because of an unfortunate backwards fall in May. During the waiting time after surgery while he was in a coma, I felt led to relinquish him to the Lord, should it be God's will. And Bud left me to be with Jesus 36 hours later. Though I and the family continue to miss him at every turn, this so clearly connected to my prayers. God has given us confidence that this was the best option for him. With my family nearby and the encouragement and support of many of you, I'm trying to walk with Jesus, who is my strength. So I ask you, do you actually look for, recognize, and reflect on answered prayers? When you pray with a request about something on your heart, are you really ready and willing to accept God's answers, whether they be yes or no? Thank you for listening to my story. This morning's scripture is from the books of Isaiah and Matthew, so please follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. I'll be reading from the sixth chapter of Isaiah, or chapter 11, I mean the sixth verse, and verses 18 to 24 from Matthew. So from Isaiah, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. And from Matthew, this is now how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary had, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, 
And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. The word of the Lord. Well, if you uh, haven't been introduced to me yet, my name is Paul Peterson. I was introduced to the congregation last week, but uh, I just want to say again uh, how honored and humbled I am to be called to be an interim pastor with you during this season for your church. Very grateful to the interim pastor search committee that contacted me originally and then presented to the lead team. And um, it's really fitting that Donna be our storyteller and scripture reader today because as you may have read in the loop, Um, I grew up on the east side. My family moved there in the 1950s, and in my college and adult years, I was made aware of Evergreen, or Mercer Island Covenant at that time, and aware of Bud and Donna's ministry together. And so again, Donna, thank you for uh, your honest uh, sharing of your story. And it also is connected to my family in that my older sister, Cheryl, and her husband, Ron, were on staff with Bud in the 1980s. You old timers will remember Dave Benedict, Mike Fitzgerald, they were associate pastors at that time. And it's really a joy for me this morning to have my brother-in-law, Ron, over here for you old timers. And Ron is sitting with my wife, Catherine. So would you welcome both Ron and my wife? My sister also, uh, died in 2011 and her service was held in this very sanctuary. So uh, this is a very meaningful church. You nurtured Ron and Cheryl and they're my two nieces and my nephew uh, through this church in their early years. And so again, uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Uh, Would you join me in prayer as we begin our message today? The psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. God, we don't always know where we're going in life. We think we do, but things happen. And so this morning, if there are those here who are in a place of uncertainty and confusion, I pray for them that your word will be an encouragement and a lamp to their feet. And I pray for those who are in a good place, who are looking forward to this Christmas season. I pray that the light and the lamp of your word will light their way as well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're in week two of the Advent series that Pastor Julie began last week. Uh, Her topic was a time for encouragement, and she really settled on the virtue of hope. And in her message, she was focusing on Zechariah and Elizabeth from the Gospel of Luke. These were the parents of John the Baptist. Their prayer and their hope was that in their old age, they could bear their own child. A crazy prayer. 
But obviously enveloped in that was the hope that they believed in a God who was not only hearing, but could answer a crazy prayer like that. And they were not forgotten by God, and we know from the text that they did bear a child, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And Julie's message brought up something that I have always tried to share in the Advent season with the congregations that I've served. Advent, when we look at the scriptures, it requires us to have what I call double vision. With one eye, we look at the fulfillment of the prophecy that we read in the Gospels, because those are predicted in the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. So one eye is focused on the fulfillment. But at the same time, we need double vision to have our other eye focused on a future day because the scriptures are wonderful in this full uh, matter that they can speak to both the fulfillment in Jesus' time, but also look forward to the ultimate fulfillment. And that, frankly, is where we really put our ultimate hope. And so today, the theme in this second Sunday of Advent is a time for renewal with a focus really on the virtue of peace. And I think that peace, uh, for those of you who have been around the Christian church in Advent, you know that peace is a dominant theme in Advent, even really outside of the church. Uh, How many of us have seen a billboard or a sign in a store that says, peace on earth? the abbreviated declaration of the angels as they were announcing the birth of Christ. It obviously had more to uh, that declaration than just that. But every human wants to have peace on earth. In the old days when Miss America would have the pageant and they would do the interview, the question, throwing these really hardball questions at these young ladies, And what was the common answer? What would you wish for if you could have anything in the world? World peace, right. So peace is this dominant theme, but we have to look at the layers beneath what our society thinks about what peace is. And we're going to look this morning and reflect how Joseph, Mary's husband, lived out this gospel promise. If you put up the first painting... Appreciated Julie's use of paintings uh, last week, and the internet has just been a wonderful gift to pastors because paintings like this that we used to have to go to some museum somewhere in Europe, now we can Google a theme and boom, we get it. I love uh, this initial photo. Obviously, after Jesus is born, this was painted in 1650. But actually, we know very little about Joseph other than what we learn in these very short birth narratives. Joseph's only other appearance in the Gospels, apart from the nativity, is when they were in the temple and they presented Jesus when he was 12 and he has this discussion with the religious leaders. And then, Joseph's gone. He's out of the story. And most scholars believe that Joseph probably died an untimely death in his young adult life or midlife because he isn't mentioned at all in the Gospels by the time Jesus was 30. And at the cross, as Jesus was gasping his last breath, he looks down to his mother and what does he say? 
he says to his disciple, John, behold your mother. Please take care of my mom. And that's it. So for Matthew's purposes, all we really need to know about Joseph is right here. If you have read the Bible at all, you know that if you treat it as a novel, you will be sorely disappointed. The Bible is terrible in terms of character development with most of the people that we encounter. Now, Jesus gets a full story, obviously, but the other ones were left with, well, Joseph just shows up. Can you give us a little backstory? How did he get here? They're more like a scrapbook of Jesus' life. They're not a chronological story about how Jesus' life developed. It's like a picture. And so each of the gospel writers were really editors of their gospel, and they take these snapshots, and as editors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they take these snapshots and they put them together for their purposes. In Matthew's case, he has a different purpose in mind than telling us Joseph's backstory. His purpose and his audience are Jews. Matthew himself was a Jew. And so he is writing to a Jewish audience, and his purpose is to link Joseph to the genealogy of King David, probably the high mark in terms of Israel's history and its monarchy. And so that's why in chapter one we have this long, boring presentation of names. When I was a kid, it was like that was the worst part of Christmas. How do you fit that into the Christmas pageant? That's not cute. But Matthew's purpose is to link Joseph. So at least we start with that. And now we're going to begin with verse 18, if you would put that up. So Matthew jumps right in the story. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Again, if this is a novel, could you give us a little help here? Uh, we don't know who Mary is. We don't know where she came from. And all of a sudden, you got this crazy thing. She's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Help us out. Help us out. We're not really tracking with this story. And in further, Matthew only gives us eight verses here. What we're looking at today is really all he gives. Chapter 2, he goes on to talk about the Magi and these wise men from the east who, by the way, did not come to the manger. You know, I'm not going to get on you for putting the wise men at your crash. But if you want to be biblically, they should be out and about because Matthew records they came to a house where Mary and Joseph were living with the child. And most scholars believe that at that point, Jesus might have been two years old because that was the age that Herod decided to wipe out when he heard that this child had been born. But nonetheless, here we have this understanding that there is a betrothal of this Mary that we know nothing about to this Joseph who we know nothing about. What we do know is betrothal in Eastern cultures was an arranged marriage. The parents determined who the son would marry. I had an encounter with this when I was on staff uh, with Youth for Christ in Seattle in the 1970s. 
and we had a young man, Thomas Verghese. He was a student at Fuller, and he did his internship with us. And Thomas came into my office one day, and he said, I need to fly back to India. My parents are calling me home. And I said, sure, what's that all about? He says, well, they've got two women that I need to decide which one's going to be my wife. He didn't know either of them. We later learned he got off the plane, and his father was there with two women. One was a nurse, and one was a teacher. And they sat, he sat down with each parent. They had a little conversation. He prays about it. I'm going to go with the nurse. So they match up with the nurse. He's there. They have a massive wedding with over 1,000 people. And he comes back with their wedding uh, folder full of pictures. So he comes back three weeks later, gets off the plane. I pick him up at SeaTac, and he's married man with proof. But his wife is back in India. That's the kind of craziness that arranged marriages are. When we try and romanticize this relationship between Mary and Joseph as if, you know, they, they met a, a, through eHarmony and they had a lot of matching characteristics, that is not the case. And it makes the tale even a little bit more bizarre. And in the betrothal process, after the parents had chosen the woman for their son, the second stage was a legally binding agreement before witnesses. Still short of marriage, but this is serious stuff. And so we're told, at least, that there is this level of commitment between Mary and Joseph. So all that sets the stage for, imagine, the betrayal that Joseph felt when he discovered that Mary was pregnant. The public disgrace. This hit social media and went viral. I mean, think about today. It is hard for anyone to cover up any of their past. With the advent of social media, we hear all the time of somebody who dug something up from their high school or college years. Do any of you want that put out on the internet? This was scandalous, and in the small area where they lived, the word was out. And again, in this culture, this was not just dishonorable for Joseph. This isn't just him going, bummer for me. This, in a shame-based Eastern culture, reflects on his parents and his family and the generations of his family. And maybe on a personal level, Joseph is actually thinking about the dashed dreams that he had for this relationship with Mary. Well, let's look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, that, that's all we're told about his religious background. He was a devout Jew, and he was faithful to the law. So he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, and he had in mind quietly to divorce her. The societal expectations of the time would have been that he had every legal right to a divorce. This was clear cut. This was not going to be wavering in the court of public opinion. In fact, he could have even had her put to death legally for this. This is a patriarchal society, not like ours. And so all we can surmise from this verse, as we try to understand some of the character of this man, is he was very merciful. 
And he extended that mercy to Mary. Verse 20. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. All right, now it gets really weird. In a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, there's that link to the messianic connection. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. She'll give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Put up the next painting, if you would. If you'll notice, uh, the artwork that I really enjoy, I call it halo-free. I'm not big on all the stuff that, you know, makes this real sacramental, sacred look for Mary and Joseph. They They were great folks. I'm not minimizing that. But I like the human side, and so the the angel can have all the glory and and halo stuff going on that they want. But I resonate with this depiction of Joseph. There was uncertainty. There were questions. What was Joseph's emotional and psychological response? I want to get behind the story. Yeah, an angel appears to him in a dream, But we know throughout the scriptures that wasn't always a done deal, even when there was an epiphany of a deity that showed up. These were human beings who were wondering what in the world this all meant. Was this dream a result of stress that was already in Mary and Joseph's relationship? Did he get some bad pizza the night before? And had an upset stomach. You ever wonder after you have a bad dream, like, man, what did I eat last night? That's your first thought. Did he argue with the angel in his dream? And if it was me, I would have said, I need some time alone to think about what in the world is going on here. And I would have gone down to Luther Burbank Park and walked the trail along Lake Washington. Verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now again, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. He didn't even need to say who the prophet was. They knew he is now about to quote from the prophet Isaiah because they knew their scripture. The quote is, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel which means God with us. A direct quote from Isaiah 7, 14. This is probably the most well-known verse that is proclaimed during this wonderful season of Advent. But for Matthew's purposes here, and put up the next uh, painting, this is a Rembrandt, and it's uh, obviously after uh, Jesus was born, so Mary is is cuddling baby Jesus there. But I I love Joseph. He's like, what the heck? Um, (laughs) Remember, Matthew wrote his gospel after the resurrection of Jesus. We know how the story played out in Jesus' passion and resurrection. And by the way, Even though only two of the Gospels mention Jesus' birth narrative, 
all four of them, the majority of their gospel is about the passion, the cross, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. That should give us a clue about where the emphasis should be when we share this glorious tale of our Lord. But in this case, Matthew is looking back after the resurrection, after Jesus has ascended, and now they're sharing these stories verbally in these house churches that are spreading all over the Mediterranean. The gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat down, took those snapshots, and for their own purposes, put them together in the gospels. So Matthew knows the answer, meaning the resurrection. And so he includes this prophecy from Isaiah, and now looking back through resurrection lenses, he goes, pretty obvious, folks, those Isaiah passages that we spent our lifetime learning in rabbi school, that was all about Jesus being the link. At this point, all Joseph knows is you're supposed to call him Jesus, he's gonna save people of their sins, and you're looking at a baby. How's this going to work? And again, I love the humanity of Joseph, but as we will continue to see his faith. Without seeing through the resurrection lens and looking back, there would be no need to record Jesus' birth. His birth would have had no more significance than Moses, Abraham, David, Jeremiah. You could go on any of the characters in the Old Testament. Their birth would have been nice. Yeah, they were born. But it would have had no significance were it not for the resurrection. And so we're getting a picture into what the early church was having these aha moments as they read their Hebrew scriptures. Let's go to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph does the unthinkable. Public disgrace, it's gone viral in the community, his family has been shamed, and he says, I'm sticking with her. And I love the end of verse 25. It's pretty matter of fact. This is not fireworks and big ta-da, here comes the birth of Jesus. It's, eh, she gave birth to a son. They called his name Jesus. That's it. Matthew is linking this to the history and the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. The rest of the details of Jesus' birth, we wouldn't know unless Luke had recorded them in his gospel. Well, now let's just jump to the one verse that Donna did read from Isaiah chapter 11. This, again, is looked at through resurrection eyes, linking it to this passage, and that's why we have it included in the lectionary. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf and the lion with the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. If you read that entire passage uh, in the first verses of, of chapter 11, you'll get a bigger picture of this. But this one verse really says what Isaiah is trying to get at. He's using hyperbole, and here's where the double vision comes in. 
Now his other eye is not just looking at the birth narrative, now he's looking forward to something called the day of the Lord, which we would call the second coming or the second advent. And Isaiah's hyperbole says, normally wolves are predators of lambs. Leopards go after goats. Lions go after calves. But guess what? In the year of the Lord, in this coming age, when everything is made right, those animals are going to be hanging out. They're buddies. And it gets even crazier. Little children that normally would live in fear of those animals in the wild, the children are leading those animals. They're caring for their, those animals. And Isaiah gives this beautiful picture of the future for all of those who call on Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. It's the double vision. It's the completion of God's perfect kingdom on earth. And the result is true, biblical, righteous, and godly peace. Look at this one text from Romans 5, because at this point, we could go on a five-week series on the biblical meaning of peace, but we're just going to go real quick. The Apostle Paul reflected on it this way, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate peace that every one of us need is the vertical peace with the creator of this universe. This is the only peace that will satisfy the cravings of the human spirit. The prophets in Judaism had a wonderful word for this eventual consummation of all of God's uh, redemption of God's kingdom. It's called shalom. It's also a greeting if you have Hebrew or, or, or Jewish friends. But the, the, the word just incorporates so many ideas in English. There's harmony. There's wholeness. There's completeness. And here's the irony for me. I don't have any of those things within me. I don't ever feel like I've been in harmony with every relationship, with, every, with the community around me, with nature. I've never been completely whole. There is no fullness of this, shalom, in the present. It's that shadow of what is to come because this is what Matthew is getting at in what Isaiah prophesied, and he saw it. Someday that will be given to us. It starts with the vertical peace with God, which allows us to be at peace with ourselves. We're all troubled by the fact of teenage suicide and the stress we see on our young people. It's a horrific epidemic among our young people. They're not even at peace with themselves, and who knows all the ramifications of why that is. I'll leave that to the psychologists and sociologists, but from a spiritual perspective, we have to be at peace with ourselves, and that comes because of the vertical peace. We can work on our own selves in our own peace with God. And only when those two things happen can we be at peace with other people. It's a wonderful sentiment, peace on earth, goodwill towards men and women. But that sentiment from human history, if you take a basic 
college course, there ain't no real thread of that kind of thing in the history of this planet. And so while it's a yearning of every heart, the perspective of this narrative this morning is that's only possible when our relationship is peaceful with God and we are at peace in our own spirit, then our relationships with others and with this world we live in is possible. Well, let's go back to Joseph for the wrap-up here. I think you could surmise that Joseph was a personality that liked things going to plan. We do know he was a carpenter, right? Carpenters, I think, are kind of like engineers. There's one way to do things, and it's the right way. I'm really glad we got engineers that do things the right way. But this whole situation had to throw him for a loop. He liked to make things that fit. He would measure them. He would follow a plumb line and put the corners together. And he didn't like surprises because he was a carpenter and in charge of the project. Perhaps his prayer was, God, this is so far outside of my comfort zone. Could you please send another angel to maybe confirm what that crazy dream was all about? I'm not sure what Joseph wanted, but we can all identify with him in the, th- in the aspect that we all have questioned God when unforeseen circumstances have come into our lives. It may have come sitting in a doctor's office and hearing news that you were not expecting. It may have come from being rejected by a parent or by a spouse or by a child. Maybe it came in a time of sudden loss, a loss of a job, a loss through divorce, or even death itself. I'm sure Joseph didn't have all the information that he wanted at this stage of the story. So what can we learn from his example? We'll put up the final painting, and this one, again, was around 1650. It's kind of a hallmark uh, painting, right? Long before the card company. But it's a happy little family here with Joseph and his son and the family dog. What do we know? Joseph had a foundation of seeking and knowing God through the truth of the Hebrew scriptures. And he knew the line of covenant promise that goes way back to Abraham and to David, and he was a part of that line. He was in a spiritual posture of receiving what God had for him. And even though this was the craziest story he'd ever encountered, he trusted God for peace. While he had a front row seat to the great miracle in salvation story, that little boy would save the world. So for us, will our confusion over situations that we're facing, will that immobilize us this Advent? Can you and I again trust the unseen Jesus and humbly submit my choices, both the big and the small, to his will and purpose? And finally, can I take steps of faith 
without having all the information that as a human being I clamor for. I can't say it any better than the Apostle Paul did in 1 Thessalonians. This was his prayer for that church. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, in other words, the wholeness of who we are as human beings, be kept blameless, and here's his double vision, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking forward. But it's not because of his grit. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, this is so far beyond our ability to try to live up to even what we've heard from your word. So we say, as we often do, help our unbelief, help our questioning and our uncertainties, give us the miracle gift of faith to walk with you hand in hand through the mysteries of our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.